I mean, it's a regulatory ecosystem, right? So you just have to engage in a dialogue with that ecosystem and make sure the right parties are playing the right role. There's a, a convening role, there's an investigatory role, there's a initiator of a dialogue role, but it takes a village to commercialize new technology. Hello and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This week, we talk to state leaders as part of our ongoing project, the Clean Resilient States Initiative. States are an important source of leadership in advancing climate and energy objectives in the United States. State regulatory utility commissioners oversee electricity and gas services and are especially influential in guiding the development of new clean energy infrastructure. Between February 13th and 16th, The National Association of Regulatory Utility Commissioners, or NARUC, convened in Washington, D.C. for their Winter Policy Summit, which brought together state regulators, policymakers, and other stakeholders from all 50 states. My colleague, Morgan Higman, spoke with commissioners from the states of Arizona, Colorado, and Washington to learn about their perspectives on climate goals and state transitions. Eric Blank was appointed chairman of the Colorado Public Utilities Commission by Governor Polis for a four-year term beginning in January, 2021. Eric is a lawyer and economist from Boulder. He has worked on electric utility and clean energy issues for over 35 years. Working with the public utility commissioners of six Western states, Eric helped develop some of the first policies that made utility clean energy investments initially feasible. He has also helped commercialize wind and solar technologies by building some of the earliest and largest clean energy projects outside of California. Commissioner Ann Randall was appointed to the Washington Utilities and Transportation Commission by Governor Inslee in December 2014 and was reappointed to a second term in December 2021. She currently serves as the chair of the NARUC Electricity Committee and on NARUC's Board of Directors. Commissioner Randall's work with the Washington Commission extends back over 30 years and includes work in policy, legislation, and administrative law. Most state commissioners are appointed to their positions by the governor or legislature. But in 14 states, commissioners are elected, including in Arizona. Chairwoman Leah Marquez-Peterson was elected to the Arizona Corporation Commission in November 2020 and elected by her fellow commissioners to serve as chair. She is the first Latina to serve in a statewide office in the state of Arizona and is currently the only commissioner in Arizona who is not from Maricopa County. Chairwoman Peterson is president of the National Association of Women Business Owners in Tucson. She also serves in an advisory role for Arizona Judicial Commission, which advises the Arizona Supreme Court and for the Arizona Finance Authority, the state's bonding authority. Throughout our discussion today, you will hear how these different professional backgrounds shape the perspectives of the commissioners. I'll turn it over to my colleague Morgan now for this great discussion. Welcome commissioners, and thank you so much for joining us today. Chairwoman Peterson, I hope we could begin with a high-level view of topics you're focused on in Arizona. Certainly, I will tell you Arizona's economy is doing incredibly well. We've seen so many new companies, semiconductor businesses, battery storage companies coming to Arizona. So the overarching goal and uh, something we're always striving to is reliability and affordability of electricity during these incredible times of growth. So we're focused a lot on resource adequacy, um, preparing for the very hot summer months. Arizona can get up to 115, 117 degrees in the summer. So making sure that we have uh, the proper resources for that period of time. Uh, So you'll see a lot of, I think, work in that regard from us. We've also been working a lot with electric vehicle and charging station and a statewide roadmap. That's been pretty exciting. And over the last four years, we've been debating our energy rules. So that's certainly top of mind when people look to Arizona. That's a terrific review. Thank you for that. Commissioner Rendell, it's going to be an exciting year for climate and energy. In the year ahead, what will you be working on in Washington State? Well, we have a lot on our plates, but we're also initiating a overall performance-based rate-making proceeding and just getting started with that and learning from our colleagues in other states what they've done. We also are really still in the midst of implementing the state's Clean Energy Transformation Act, or CETA for short. And our utilities have all filed their four-year clean energy implementation plans at the end of the year. And so we are now in the process of reviewing those as well. 
And we're also did some work at the end of the year, uh, again, from the same legislation that created the multi-rate plan law, required utilities to provide funding for participants in rate cases and particularly prioritizing vulnerable communities for those funds. So we're also in the process of working through those issues. So lots going on. And at the same time, I think as a state trying to process the federal infrastructure bill and what our priorities are as a state. Chairman Blank, your commission is helping pave the way for some climate and energy goals established by Colorado's governor and legislature. Could you tell us a little more about that? I just would say I think it's an extraordinary moment for Colorado right now. The costs of wind, solar, and storage have now become cost competitive uh, with the operating costs of the existing coal plants, such that I now think it's uh, possible to decarbonize uh, our energy systems in Colorado. And I think we can do it in a way that benefits all customers uh, while maintaining a safe and reliable grid. And I'd go even further and say that we have the opportunity to become a, a national model because of the leadership of the governor and our state legislature. We now have a statutory framework in place that uh, mandates signing emission reductions with specific deadlines and requires us to do it in an economically sustainable way that protects our most disadvantaged customers and uh, communities. So a really powerful base for us to move forward. You know, second, I would say Colorado, we don't have the best wind, we don't have the best solar, but we may have the best wind and solar as a combined resource. Uh, uh, we also have fairly strong economic growth, uh, which enables us to turn over equipment more quickly, vehicles, buildings, uh, which is a nice thing. And we also start with relatively low bills and maybe to a lesser extent, low rates, which give us an opportunity over time to invest uh, in ways that uh, still protect customers. So I don't think this has to be a red versus blue war or some tribal food fight. To me, it just comes down to, you know, really simple economics and math. And I think we can decarbonize in a smart, and sensible way, like I say, that protects all customers and maintains a safe and reliable grid. And that's why I'm in this job. It's why I took this job. And uh, I think Colorado can lead the way towards a replicable purple state economic model about how to decarbonize uh, smart and economically sustainable. That's a terrific overview. Thank you so much. <laughs> State utility commissions are fundamentally economic regulators. Chairman Blank, how can you encourage innovation in ways that are not always top down? Where you've got to align customer incentives, utility incentives around the fundamental resource economics. It's got to be a comprehensive, coherent, integrated approach where everybody's pulling in the same direction towards the same objective. So customer pricing is obviously a critical component of that. And the example I'd give you is EV charging, right? If you let people come home and just plug their car in and charge, you know, as soon as they get home from work, they'll add to peak demand during 6 to 8 p.m. I think it's going to be the highest loss of load probability hour. So if you let that happen, there could be a lot of EV charging, you know, up to 20 or 25% of our load. It would add a multi-billion dollar cost to the system to serve that demand. And if you price it right and gain control of when people charge and do it when the sun is shining or the wind is blowing, you can avoid curtailing the solar and wind, lower the price of the solar and wind. It's just balancing right? You just do your best you can to, to balance the competing interests. Wind, solar, and storage are now competitive with the cost of operating the existing coal plants. And that creates can create some headroom to uh, make the economics work. And then when you add in transportation electrification, which increases sales, allows you to spread your fixed costs over a larger sales base, you know, the whole thing just works. You know, the utility can uh, retire coal plants that are largely depreciated and aren't earning a profit and, you know, realize savings in fuel that are expensed and also don't earn a profit. 
and replace it with new transmission and generation, which does own a profit. So it's like in the utilities interests and the customer's interests, and it's enormously in the environment's interest. So you got this win-win-win opportunity in the electric space. It's just fundamentally unique. Traditionally, utilities earn profits through regulator-approved rate increases, the recover investment costs, and add a margin of return. Washington State is one of about a dozen exploring a move toward a new model of utility oversight through performance-based regulation, or PBR. How is that going, Commissioner Rendall? We're really very much at the beginning. We And we're starting, as many other states have, with determining really what the scope and the goals of the performance-based regulation are in Washington and getting the feedback from our stakeholders as to how we should focus on this. The statute gave us a lot of elements and factors to consider. There's a whole long list and I won't try to list them here. A lot of considerations. and But I think we're trying to focus on measuring some of the really key issues that we're dealing with. Our utilities all have advanced metering infrastructure. So how can we apply PBR to how they're using that? We have experienced significant wildfires in the Northwest and in California. And so are there things we can do for what the utilities are, how the utilities are approaching wildfires? Are there PBR elements there? And this may be, I haven't delved enough into the cases, so I'm not going to go much further in what the utilities might be proposing and what other parties might propose. So within the rate case, we'll get some performance-based metrics and focus. But in the proceeding itself, we're going to focus on what's the purpose here? Is this for customer benefit? Is this for innovation? You know, is this for financial purposes? So we're going to be having that conversation with stakeholders and um, I'm excited to begin it. We'll start having some work sessions this first quarter and see how it goes from there. And looking at what Hawaii and Rhode Island and other states have done, Minnesota, it's taken them some time. So it's not something you just say, okay, here's our metrics. Chairwoman Peterson, your commission is leading the conversation on the development of clean energy goals or targets in Arizona. How's that going? Yeah, well, as, as you're aware, states across the nation have set different energy goals or mandates, depending on what state they are. Arizona has been debating this issue for about four years. I've been on my commission about two and a half years. So I stepped in kind of mid-conversation, but quickly saw how important these issues were to the state. It's very complex rulemaking. It's not just the headline, you know, 100% carbon-free by a certain year and so on. There are a lot of components that were very important in our energy rules. Um, so I stepped in and really changed the conversation to carbon-free. That was important to me to really track or have a metric as to what we're trying to achieve. I also uh, brought to the commission, you know, the importance to me for all source RFPs in our integrated resource planning process and how we can make that more robust. So you see a lot of conversation related to that and a lot of outreach trying to get the public engaged, making sure we weren't just hearing from special interest groups or lobbyists, but really the public, the chambers, the rotaries, you know, any organization that's interested in, in weighing in. We voted in December on one package of the rules, which I myself could not support at that time. It was changing it from goals to mandates, which, from my perspective, really questioned the affordability of energy rules, created kind of a blank check for the utilities to achieve that when they themselves had made voluntary commitments to achieve 100% clean energy by 2050. The rules that had been negotiated at that point by other commissioners was 100% carbon-free by 2070. And I did not think that was a good economic development statement for Arizona, that we were going to be 20 years behind the rest of the nation. So I voted no. Just recently, we had another final vote. One of the commissioners on our five-member board changed his vote, and uh, it ended up failing. So we have not passed energy rules in the state of Arizona, because I knew that that may occur, right? It's all political and different interest groups weighing in and so on, it was important to me as the chairperson that we could begin a new, start a new docket and move forward with the language and the components of the energy rules. So we're in that process of rulemaking. Historically, the power sector has relied on large centralized infrastructure, but power sector needs could also be met by aggregating smaller distributed energy resources or DERs like solar panels and battery storage. 
Commissioner Rendall, could you talk a little bit more about the interest in these technologies? Washington is not currently in an organized market other than the energy imbalance market at the California, the Western energy imbalance market operated by California ISO. So the DER aggregation issues are different for Washington and maybe states in the Northwest than they are for other states that have utilities that are engaged in organized market. But I think in some of the meetings that I've been engaged in, you know, there's concerns about reliability purposes, making sure that the DERs are all using the same standards for connection. There are concerns about whether if DER aggregation is allowed to be sold into the market, what control do the, on the distribution side, which is what states regulate, how does that impact the local distribution and how how do utilities manage what's being produced for the market versus what's being used to serve the local area. So a lot of coordination, a lot of discussions. Chairwoman Peterson, your state is pioneering an effort to incentivize the aggregation of DERs in partnership with one of your state's major utilities, the Arizona Public Service Company or APS. How did this how did this idea come about? Yeah, it was interesting. Uh, as this idea came from my office, I quickly became, you know, aware that this is the first of its kind in the nation. You know, aggregated tariff, right? They're calling it. One of the challenges we ran into initially was making sure that stakeholders we had broad access and and availability for stakeholders that wanted to participate. Our office started immediately getting calls from companies that were in this industry across the nation, wanting to make sure they were part of the discussion. So we uh, have referred all of that to APS, who is, is leading this effort. Taking a little longer than we hoped, but we've had some national think tanks weigh in and so on. But I'm, I'm really excited that it will be the first in the nation. And from here, you know, other states can take this on and perhaps even better it in the future. But it, it's an exciting accomplishment. Could you talk a little bit about what aggregating distributed demand side resources means and what it, how it will benefit consumers? Well, certainly. So this is a tool. This is a resource in which you can utilize different demand side resources like the smart heaters, smart thermostats, um, different types of tools that are available for customers to save money every month and make it more affordable. And that we would have a tariff that would be able to pull all of those together for APS customers so it can better the lives of residents. Transmission infrastructure is a hot topic and it's critical for expanding renewable energy development and connecting generation to demand centers. How is Arizona thinking about this issue? There are a lot of conversations happening throughout the West uh, related to transmission and regional cooperation. We have a number of transmission lines that are planned and proposed coming through Arizona. And I think we realize in the state of Arizona how important it is to be collaborative with other states around us. I mean, you only have to look towards Texas and the the freeze last February, and they lacked interconnectivity and, and some of the horrible situations that occurred in Texas. And then certainly we know that from the political ideology that California has set in their state and, you know, their disuse of natural gas and nuclear has put them at an imbalance, really, and really in a desperate position. So they don't see brownouts or blackouts for their residents in the near future. So transmission to them and how that benefits Arizona is top of mind also. So it's important to me as as the chair and just as a commissioner to to engage in all these different conversations so that I can understand what's best for the state of Arizona. Commissioner Rendall, as the chair of the Nehruk Electricity Committee, you're well positioned to think about transmission in Washington state and at the regional and federal levels. What important developments are you seeing? So in uh, the Clean Energy Transformation Act, the legislature also Uh, established a transmission task force, and that is being um, conducted by our Energy Facility Siting Evaluation Council. There is separate independent agency focused on siting of energy facilities. So they're running a task force with work sessions on identifying transmission issues in the state and trying to identify where there is an opportunity for more transmission, but that's really within the state. In terms of more regional and interregional conversations, 
I'm involved with the Northern Grid Organization. That's a regional planning organization under FERC's Order 1000. And it includes the greater Northwest and Intermountain states, including Bonneville Power Administration, and trying to figure out what transmission should be planned going forward. So we're starting, we're starting a new round of transmission planning discussions and really trying to talk about the scope of what would be included. But I think the conversations at the federal level that that FERC has begun with its advanced notice of proposed rulemaking and looking at how should we do planning differently? How should we do cost allocation differently? What do we need to do on interconnection issues to address the backlog of generation interconnection? So I think those issues are also feeding into the conversations at Northern Grid. So there's a lot of conversations going on and a lot of interest in developing transmission to really facilitate bringing generation that might be in a more rural area or eastern part of the region to the west side of the state. And of course, that's a controversial discussion as well. So there is a lot going on in that conversation. Of course, there's the joint FERC narrow transportation task force that's going to have its second meeting at the NARUC meetings in February. So that's a great opportunity to really talk about issues that the states have and how to ensure that any any change in regulations that FERC might have, that the states have an opportunity to really share their concerns uh, with FERC. So Transmission issues are frequently a point of discussion at the regional levels in organized energy markets, but the northwest part of this country and the south do not have these markets. What does that mean for Washington? A big issue in the west has to do with coordination on energy markets and coordination on energy issues. And I think the West has really begun to come together. A lot of state conversations, regional conversations about the need for developing energy markets and and how we go about doing that in the West. The energy imbalance markets development has been instrumental in allowing all the utilities because we have a significant amount of public power in the West that might be different from other areas. So in Washington, 55% of customers in the state are served by about 61 consumer-owned utilities or public power. And then the commission regulates the three investor-owned utilities. So getting all of those people comfortable with the idea of working together through a market, but governance issues are really hard and dealing with the transmission uh, costs is going to be another big issue. So there's a lot of conversations, more than there have been in the past, and a lot going on. So that's a lot of extracurricular activity for state regulators, but it's really important. And having those conversations with my colleagues across different states has been extraordinarily beneficial. And I think it's been really helpful to hear other people's perspectives as we approach all of these market conversations. I think there's a lot of interest and a lot of support, but the devil is always in the details. And this has been the case going back many, many years, trying to organize markets in the West. And so, as I said, you know, governance, transmission costs, all of those issues are, are hard. And now you have the greenhouse gas issues, accounting issues on top, but hard doesn't mean it's not possible. So there's a lot of work going on. I think it may just need to be a bit more incremental. So we're, we're, we're working on, on trusting one, learning how to trust one another and working together. So I think it's going to be critical to really achieve all of our clean energy goals, both you know, state goals and the utility goals and the large corporate goals. Transmission is going to be needed as well. So the market will help, but if you can't move the power then move the energy, then you have a problem. So I think it's a combination of the transmission and coordinating better through some market process to effectively and efficiently and affordably transfer power around the West. Hydrogen is an emerging technology that holds a lot of promise to store energy and support intensive industrial activities. Is Washington considering opportunities in this area? Hydrogen and the hydrogen hub is something very interesting. We have quite a bit of hydroelectric power in the state, and I think there are a number of different consumer-owned utilities. We do not regulate the consumer-owned utilities who are looking at, you know, excess power from their dams and can they 
run electrolyzers and create hydrogen? And can we, so pursuing the hydrogen angle, also a big focus is on resilience. So wildfires and flooding and rising sea levels, extreme weather, and even the cyber issues. So there's quite a bit in the bill on resilience and also grid modernization. How do we support integrating renewables and distributed energy resources in the state? And last but not least, certainly not least, is transmission planning and siting and development. So I think those are the key buckets. We have not yet started talking about the broadband funding in the bill. Broadband is is yet another issue. That's not something that the commission has jurisdiction over. But there are other agencies in the state, including our broadband office, who are probably looking at pursuing some of those broadband funds as well. Chairwoman Peterson, Arizona also has some hydrogen projects in development. Could you tell us about those? Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited about opportunities with hydrogen. Uh, the Department of Energy provided a several hundred million dollar grant to APS, our largest utility, to work with our nuclear power plants with a hydrogen project. Uh, and we then furthered that by passing a special agreement between Nikola, which is a hydroelectric large truck manufacturer that's based in Phoenix, uh, to have a special arrangement with them and APS. So I think you see a lot of pilot projects, a lot of innovative um, direction in which we're going with hydrogen. I fully understand that the cost doesn't quite make sense yet. We need to do further innovative tactics to work with hydrogen, but I, I think it is a resource of the future. And so it's something that has important to me to stay on top of. I want to see Arizona really being, you know, a hydrogen hub in the future. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of discussion now for using hydrogen as both an energy storage system and also a, a you know, a resource for industry. Um, I wondered if you think Arizona has a, a strength in one area or the other. It's interesting, just this past weekend, I was looking at charts in which the federal government put out that talked about hydro storage hubs and things of that nature. Arizona was listed prominently on that list. Um, so it's certainly something I want to submit letters or speak or testify in support of uh, and, and want to continue to follow that. I think from a commission perspective, all of the commissions across the country are, are pretty different. We're structured differently. If you look at the filter in which we are created, we're created by the Constitution, we're elected and there are five of us. We regulate not only you know, investor-owned private utilities, electric water, gas, wastewater, but we're also managing railroad and pipeline safety. We're incorporating all the businesses in the state. We're tackling securities fraud. We have limited jurisdiction on telecom. So when you include all those different items that could make for a very robust agenda, as you can imagine, every time we have our meetings, paying attention to some of these very innovative, important initiatives that happen at the federal level, like hydrogen and storage and so on, to ensure that Arizona is at the table is very important. There's lots of hype around hydrogen, but Chairman Blank, how do you decide whether it's in Colorado's best interest to be a leader or to sit back and learn from other states about this resource? Well, here's what I'd say. I'm a former renewable energy developer before I took this job a year ago. I had spent over 15 years as a wind developer and then later as a solar developer. And uh, we had a wind energy company before there was a wind industry. We had a solar company before there was a solar industry. I think we started when there was uh, five megawatts of solar outside of California, and we started developing 100 and 200 megawatt projects, eventually bringing in the largest operating solar projects in MISO, PJM, and Colorado for quite some time until recently. And I'd say what you have to do is pay careful attention to the economics. If the economics are close, you can uh, do pilots at scale. And if the economics are not close, you got to start at very, you got to manage the dollars. So for me, burning hydrogen as a fuel to replace natural gas, I think is, has a ways to go. Creating hydrogen for the hydrogen commodities market, which is 25 times higher in value. That's something I could see happening in the near term. And, you know, we do have a refinery in Colorado and, you know, so it's almost like a developer perspective, right? You uh, get underneath the economics and you, uh, you know, and you scale your investment to and your risk consistent uh, with uh, where the technology is. And then you also want to be smart about who wears the risk. You know, you want to sign offtake agreements with experimental technology. So if the technology fails, the owner of the technology eats the loss, not repairs. 
So I'm not a big fan of rate basing experimental technology at very large cost. You know, just do it through off-take agreements and if the technology fails, the entity that had all the upside can eat the downside. So there's a lot of things you can do with a developer hat on in a, with regulatory powers to make sure risk gets allocated fairly and that the dollars are commensurate with uh, the technological investment. So small dollars uh, to start with on hydrogen for burning in power plants, you know, and you, you take it from there. So hopefully that answers your question. Yeah, it does. Last year, the country saw a record number of billion dollar disasters. And those events have generated a lot of concern about grid resilience. How are you thinking about this topic, Chairwoman Peterson? For me, I have particularly focused on the reliability piece and I've even hosted energy reliability summits and things of that nature, because we are sitting between California and Texas, to be blunt. I mean, the the recent situations they've had over the last year and a half have really brought it to the forefront. If you were with me and we were attending rotary luncheons and I was speaking, it's the number one question I get. You know, how can you, Chairwoman, assure that we won't have brownouts like California or people die because of freeze and like they did in Texas or some of those horrible situations that occurred? So to me, I think the number one thing that we owe Arizonans is reliability and service, especially because it's life and death in Arizona. If you're in Phoenix and it's 117 degrees and you don't have air conditioning, that's life and death. Um, So that's why it's important to me. I have focused on that and and what we um, owe Arizona ratepayers. And then certainly affordability is something that, you know, everybody talks about also. And we have some higher rates in Arizona. So it's something that we're tackling and doing what we can. Resiliency or the the climate impact. I mean, certainly as as a mom, as someone in Arizona, I, I certainly care about that, but I don't lead with that. Colorado has also faced some significant resilient challenges in recent memory. How is your commission working to address this issue, Chairman Blank? Yeah, well, for me, the recent Marshall Fire was, you know, less than roughly a mile or two from my house. Uh, My in-laws had to evacuate. We know multiple people who've lost their homes. And we've started to try and understand, you know, what climate change means for us. When you look at that event, the combination of drought and temperature was literally off the charts. It was like one or two standard deviations beyond anything we've ever seen before. The wind was not. The wind, uh, 100 mile an hour winds have been experienced in Colorado before. So, you know, for us, we've initiated an investigatory docket to see if we can, you know, just quantify how extreme weather could get, what the combination of those events look like. So we're trying to systematically work with, you know, the thought leaders on the climate side, which there are a lot in Colorado and see if we can quantify it and then figure out what it means for system resilience. It's going to take a year or two to crank through it, but, you know, just multiple wake-up calls from Storm Uri, which we didn't have reliability problems like Texas were properly winterized, but it, it was like a $700 million hit again, on a $6 billion revenue requirement. So really painful. And, uh, you know, and there's some things you can do, just build future gas plants with fuel switching capabilities and keep five days of fuel oil on site. But it just requires a higher level, systematic, scenario, probabilistic uh, type thinking. And we've just launched that investigation uh, literally uh, this year. So we'll say we're trying. You know, it's really frustrating because most of the planning occurs based on historical experience. And it's just clear the historical experience is irrelevant going forward. It's certainly in defining the extremes. So it's just uh, changing how you think about capacity, how you think about weather extremes, uh, how you think about design criteria. And we're doing our best to think through it all. Yeah, these days, climate and energy initiatives are increasingly centered around considerations of equity and inclusion. How is Washington incorporating these imperatives, Commissioner Rindall? So CETA, our Clean Energy Transformation Act, requires that all customers benefit from the transformation. And it specifically highlights certain communities. They refer to them as vulnerable communities and highly impacted populations. And the highly impacted populations are focused on referencing a set of data collected by our Department of Health 
and it has certain areas of the state where they've identified impacts from pollution, economic impacts, asthma indication, you know, so there's a number of factors that we'll be considering when we look at those communities, but it requires us to make sure that those communities are, their burdens are reduced as we go forward. So in our rules, we required each utility to conduct outreach to those communities. Our utilities have created equity advisory groups, including those at-risk communities and vulnerable communities to make sure they're hearing their perspective in terms of how they wish to be benefited going forward. So that is a work in progress. Each of our utilities have included customer benefit indicators in their four-year clean energy implementation plans. So we'll be reviewing those and receiving comment from stakeholders. So I would say we're on, on our way, but we're still very much at the beginning of our journey and trying to really work with with vulnerable populations and impacted communities, knowing what they need. And so part of that is this effort to provide participation funding and figuring out what we can do to support those communities as they engage both with the utilities and with the commission as we go forward in implementing this law. So it's it's a process. Uh, We have hired an external engagement coordinator to focus on equity issues specifically. We have been making sure that for any of our proceedings, we have a on-demand translation service. So if someone needs translation, then we can provide that in any of our proceedings. We try to make sure that all of our notices are being translated into languages that we know communities speak and encouraging our utilities to do the same. So there's been a lot of work that's gone on over the last two years, but we still have quite a lot to do. Yeah, but it sounds like you're doing a great job thinking about equity in terms of both participation and end benefits. Chairman Blank, the Colorado legislature has directed your utility commission to examine issues around equity for customer service. Your state is also working to support just transitions for coal affected communities as the state phases that resource out. Could you give us a sense of how your commission is working on these issues? Yeah, in uh, 2021, our legislature passed uh, Senate Bill 210272, which uh, basically mandates that we, the PUC, incorporate considerations about disadvantaged communities and customers into everything we do. So, I mean, we're, we're uh, initiating several rulemakings to try and get some basic definitions in place, engage in outreach, you know, trying to conduct some internal training about how best to think about it. But it's just going to be integrated into everything we do, from who's in the case to the record we built to the final decision making by statute. And we've gotten some additional resources from the legislature to uh, implement those requirements. Very good. Um, related to this idea of equity and inclusion, I know that Colorado is looking out, uh, looking at phasing out coal-fired electricity plants in the coming year. I wondered what your role as a regulatory commission um, is in guiding just transitions for workers in affected communities. Yeah, it's uh, it's a challenge. Uh, not only do we have coal plants in certain communities, but we also have coal mines, which makes the problem that much more intractable. The plants, you know, through the regulatory system, I don't want to prejudge uh, some, of, some of this is in front of us, but there's proposals to basically keep the, the local communities whole on property tax revenues, independent of whether the, the coal plant operates. We've uh, managed to site replacement power in the same county, which has backfilled jobs and employment. We retired uh, two coal plants outside uh, Pueblo, Colorado, and two coal units, and uh, we're able to site enough solar and storage in that county that the city and county of Pueblo ultimately supported the coal plant retirements. And, you know, sometimes uh, in other communities, we've been converting the coal to natural gas because you have uh, interconnect transmission, natural gas, water, rail lines, all there, you know, as well as some air quality permits. So, and instead of creating a brownfield site that has to be uh, redeveloped, you have an operating asset with a revenue stream that funds the, the cleanup and the transition, both within the community and on the site. 
So we're going down multiple paths, repowering, replacement generation. You know, we may look at putting new technologies, uh, storage technologies on the sites, uh, some of these coal plants. And we're just, you know, guaranteeing, uh, have the opportunity to guarantee certain revenue streams to these communities. And the state has also helped. There's now an office of just transition for these communities that is uh, funded and uh, working hard to manage it. But it can be a really difficult problem, particularly uh, when you have the mines that, you know, the 60 employees, 80 employees, 100 employees at the plant, you can find other jobs for. But when you have 500 mining jobs in a community, you know, it can be an order of magnitude uh, more difficult. And we're, we're struggling to figure out how to best deal with that. Chairwoman Peterson, what are you doing to ensure that all Arizonans benefit from energy transitions? maybe especially in light of the new investment opportunities created by the Federal Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act of 2021. Where I have spent particular time and attention to are the broadband-related funds. We are in dire need of additional funding for rural, tribal, low-income areas throughout Arizona that need high-speed internet. So I've been serving on a statewide broadband stakeholder network since the beginning of the pandemic. What some of the challenges we've had, which we've provided feedback to the federal government, is that it's dependent on the community to apply. So you need a grant writer. You need someone who's able to do that. We've got an incredible broadband state office leader who has been tracking that and supplementing it with additional funds by the state legislature and the governor. But we still have a ways to go. And then the NTIA is going to be responsible for deployment of those funds. So that's one slice of that that I have been tracking closely because I think broadband availability is the key to economic development for all these rural communities, tribal communities, and coal-impacted communities. Uh, We're in the middle of quite a discussion right now, and it's not just us, right? The entire country is, related to coal-impacted communities and how they focus on economic transition. The date's there. We know by what year that coal plant's closing. So where is the planning occurring now? And How does the federal government engage, the state, the commission, and so on? But I think broadband is key to that. So that's why I've been focusing so much on it. I am a a big proponent of, I guess, the carrot versus the stick, as you mentioned earlier. I am not for one for setting mandates, I guess, in this case, but really to highlight and celebrate those that are having incredible programs. For me, having run a Hispanic Chamber of Commerce, this is very close to home. I think that we do business with those that are within our network. So we need to broaden the network. We need to create awareness. So when we hosted our supplier diversity summit just a couple months ago, we had all of the utilities participating, talking about their programs, how to get certified, how you can do business with them. And then what I tried to do is make sure that I reached out to all of the different chambers throughout the state and different you know, maybe a YWCA Tucson, which runs our Women Business Center or the National Association of Women Business Owners in different parts of the state and groups like that. So I wanted to ensure that we had veteran women and minority owned businesses that had an opportunity also Um, to do business with our utilities tends to be pretty capital intensive, but there are lots of ways to collaborate and work together uh, and or even be a subcontractor to somebody that I think could be really helpful. For you, Chairwoman Peterson, this idea of working together extends to communicating the work of your regulatory commission to the public. Could you talk a little bit more about your efforts in this area? Diving into the world at the Arizona Corporation Commission, I realized how challenging it was to kind of figure out what was happening and what was going to impact my family, my business, let's say, as a public member going through our website. Um, A lot of the conversations we hear at the commission are led by special interest groups and lobbyists. How do we hear from the families and the people throughout the state? Um, I often do outreach when we're talking about an issue. I will be sending emails out saying, were you aware that we're talking about this and this impacts your community mayor or council or chamber president or community leader so that they can engage and be aware of it? Um, A lot of the stuff that we tackle at the commission is very wonky, is very detailed, and people only learn about us through the media. And, you know, I know that's the reality, but that's not how I wanted to operate the commission. So my fellow commissioners and I have supported putting our votes all on the website, which weren't there before. So now you can click on our our mugshot on the website and go to the spot that talks about our votes and you can 
drill down. And if you wanted to read all the letters we wrote in the dockets related to those issues, you can do so. Again, just trying to make it more accessible and, and more transparent. I've also has launched a little video that I call Chairwoman Chats, that after every open meeting, I try to shoot a one or two minute video at the max to describe everything we talked about or the highlights. Commissioner Rendell, how do you think about communicating Washington's accomplishments to other states and identifying those that you could learn from or collaborate with? Well, I think that's what New York does an excellent job of doing is the Center for Partnerships and Innovation really creates a, a space for all states to share what they're doing. And so you might not know that a certain state is engaging in some initiative and it's similar to your own. And so we do communicate a lot regionally within the Northwest, but there's so many, so much work that other states are doing in different areas. So I would say it's really just through NIRUC, who is able to promote, they know, looking at all the all 50 state perspective, what each state is doing. In the big picture, state efforts matter collectively, not just individually. Chairman Blank, stepping back a bit. What's your sense of Colorado's role in promoting effective climate and energy leadership in the United States? I mean, it's a regulatory ecosystem, right? So you just have to, you know, engage in a dialogue with that ecosystem and make sure the right parties are playing the right role. So, you know, there's a, a convening role, there's an investigatory role, there's an initiator of a dialogue role. But it, it takes a village to commercialize new technology. And Colorado is, I don't know, 2%, 2 to 4% of uh, the U.S. population. So ultimately, the federal government's going to have to play its role, too. We'll be exercising leadership and pioneering plenty of stuff. But there's limits to what we can do as a, a small fraction of the U.S. economy and population. Utility commissions are responsible for and to the public interest. But with climate imperatives and energy transitions, there are some new ideas about how the public interest should be defined and governed. Commissioner Rendall, you have worked in and around your state's commission for nearly 30 years. What have you observed about the evolution of the public interest? So the interesting thing about the work that the commission does is it's always changing. So when I started in 1993 representing the commission, the commission heavily regulated the transportation side. And then that changed as the federal government deregulated trucking and motor carrier regulation. And then the Telecommunications Act, you know, passed of 1996. And we did a lot of work on, on telecommunications competition. And that was a heavy workload. And then, you know, and so things change. Things change over time as policies change, as laws change, as uh, the economics of different industries change. So there's always been change. And the commission has always been focused on how do we most efficiently regulate industries to make sure that the customer benefits. So that's a constant process. The commission's constantly changing and responding to changes in regulation. But I think this next effort that we're working on for uh, performance-based regulation is really looking at how we have done our regulation over the years and is there a different way to do it that's more effective. Chairwoman Peterson, your concern for the public interest has extended to the topic of forced labor in the Chinese solar panel supply chain. This is an issue of national and even international concern. Apart from raising awareness, what can you do to address this unfair and unethical market advantage as a utility regulator? Yeah, I was very um, pleased to see the federal government really highlight this concern and, and was happy to take this up and write my own letter. I've asked for the solar associations to respond, and many of them have in the docket to talk about and provide assurances to Arizonans that though we're buying millions of solar panels, that they're prepared and then protecting, you know, the, the workers and ensuring that there isn't for slave labor and others that are building these components. I see no reason that Arizona can't be the solar capital of the nation. So this is only going to continue to grow and we need to put some kind of guardrails, I think, around how this industry operates. Absolutely. Do you think the solution there is carrots, sticks, or a mix of both? 
I think it needs to be better oversight. I know, uh, and I've heard that certainly as so utility scale solar companies come into Arizona, we're aware of who they are. Are they a foreign entity? We have a process for that. I haven't heard the same process for the actual panels, for the component parts we're buying from China or from whatever country, and that we're actually doing research on what's on the panel and that it meets with national security issues. And I think there, there's some additional process steps we could be taking. When we think about climate and energy in the long term, politics will shape a lot of what we can achieve. Colorado is a purplish state making big moves. Chairman Blank, what can we learn from your purplish state about inspiring bipartisanship in energy transitions? It's all about markets, incentives, economics, and that's going to have to happen elsewhere. What we can lead the way in is this recognition that it can be, you can decarbonize in a sensible way and that it can benefit all of us, particularly as against China. What China is doing is just incredibly bad for the planet and they're extracting a competitive advantage out of it. And uh, we just need to turn it around. And I think that is a bipartisan perspective and that this has to be a bipartisan issue. I don't think you're going to solve climate change in blue states. So it's, that's why I've taken uh, this job and why I think Colorado is at fulcrum at the center of this transition. And I think at the end of the day, if you price carbon, the U.S., can meaningfully decarbonize at a modest economic cost, and China can't, right? China has been and is continuing to build new coal, 20 to 40,000 megawatts a year for the last 15 or 20 years. And uh, I mean, it's outrageous. And if you internalize those costs in the world trade, I think it would be an enormous competitive advantage for the United States. It's partly why I'm so focused on a purple state model about how to do this right. To me, it's less about getting the last ton of emissions, you know, this year. It's all about doing this economically right. And I think in the coming years, there's going to be a bipartisan recognition that pricing carbon is enormously in the financial and national security self-interest of the United States. The sooner that recognition can occur and the sooner it can be done on a bipartisan basis, and the better for the planet and the better for the, the U.S. strategic interests. Thank you all so much for taking the time to join us today. Thanks to Morgan for such a thoughtful and timely discussion. And thanks to Chairwoman Peterson, Commissioner Rendall, and Chairman Blank for sharing their time and helping us understand what is foremost on their state's agendas. For more on the CSIS state-level work, check out our Clean Resilient States initiative. And you can find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts and on our website, CSIS.org. Follow us on Twitter for updates at CSIS Energy. Hope you enjoyed today's discussion. And as always, thanks for listening.